Truly Deadly. Written by Rob Aspinall. Narrated by Ella Lynch. Chapter 9. What Happens in Manchester. I joined the girls in the club. I felt euphoric, like I'd got away with murder. What else could I use the scar for? Free food? Money off clothes? Better marks on my coursework? Free drinks? Millie had the last one well and truly covered, hanging off a much older guy standing at the bar with a posse of mates. They were all relics, thirties at least, all dressed in blazers or muscle jumpers, with shoes that were too polished and formal. Neon was one of those basement-level, speakeasy-style places, with a long, narrow bar area leading to pool tables and a small dance floor at the far end. It was busier than a cheap card shop at Christmas. Second-rate gangster rap shitting in my ears and temperatures hotter than the sun. We managed to squeeze our way through to the front of the queue at the bar, where the guy Millie had her arm around was lining up a round of shots. Becky stuck her arm in the air and shouted, Free shots! Woo! So much for the lift home. Down the hatch, girls, said Millie's new sugar daddy. I got the attention of the barman instead. Excuse me, have you got any vintage single malt? What? Scotch. He looked at me like I was speaking Japanese. We've got, um, the regular stuff. That'll do. What mixer? He asked me. Mixer? Why don't you just piss in it as well? Neat, I said. The barman poured the drink, and I paid. Law, what the hell is that? Becky asked. Single malt? Why? You're not my grandma. Have a shot. Yeah, it's on me, said the sugar daddy, flashing his platinum card and doing a white man grind to the music. Next minute, I was dragged off to the dance floor. We formed a circle with the old guys penning us in. I was more used to wearing my hospital slippers than heels, so it took all my concentration to dance without looking like a baby giraffe on a rolling log. Then I had one of these guys incessantly tapping me on the shoulder, blasting his beer breath in my face, asking me mundane questions like, what was my name? Where did I live? Was I having a good night? At first I was flattered, then I just got bored and narked. Was this it? I thought. Was this what all the fuss was about? Friday nights in town. Holly signalled towards a free booth, and sliding into that faux leather seat, oh yeah, best feeling ever. We puffed with relief before turning our attention to the bar. What do you think of Millie? Holly asked me. I don't know, what do you think? I said, lying biatch that I was. I knew full well what I thought. Well, I don't like to criticise, Holly said, leaning forward and sucking on her vodka and coke, but she does make me want to go back in time and stop her mum having sex with her dad. I burst into laughter so hard my scar hurt. Holly's polite way of slagging people off always cracked me up. As if to prove her point, Millie climbed on a table surrounded by guys and took her top off, wiggling her cleavage around to a chorus of Get your tits out for the lads! Holly and I watched on with jaws on the floor. Becky turned round and mouthed, What the fuck? We'd only been here an hour, and already Millie was smashed. Next minute, the bouncers waded in and pulled her down, whisking her out of the club. We all gathered outside in the cold, me wishing I'd hung onto that jacket. 
we wandered along the street in our bare feet, heels in hands, too drunk for Becky to drive her car home. The bigger issue was Millie. When she wasn't falling over laughing and flashing her knickers, she was yelling and flashing her boobs at passing cars. We dragged her away from the road and into the pedestrian high street, where all the big stores were. I looked at my phone to check the time. 12.30am. Seven missed calls, two voicemails and a text from Auntie Claire saying, Where are you? I was in serious doo-doo. A 50-50 chance of survival when I got home. Plastic Jesus would be smugger than ever. Little did we know, the Asbo King and his Neanderthal mates were in town too. Whoa-hey, it's my honeys, a slurring nasal voice shouted from behind. We turned round to see Dave, Ollie and two older men sidling up. Of all the Friday nights in the world, you're stalking us or something, Becky said. Fancy a shag, asked Dave. I'll shag you, Millie said, in between pukes against a wall. Um, no, ta, said Dave. Either of you three ladies will do, though. Especially this one, said one of the two older guys a big, ugly skinhead who looked like a cage fighter. That's Bex, said Dave. How are you doing, babes? You don't get to call me Bex or babes. That's not very nice, said a drunken Ollie. Yeah, said the other one I didn't know. A tattooed hipster rat with a call of the wild beard. We're only being friendly. Well, go and be friendly somewhere else, I said. Ooh, careful, said Dave. You'll make her faint, like in Subway. Ollie laughed and pretended to go wobbly at the knees. Once Millie finished spray-painting the wall with her quarter pounder and cheese, we moved on. But the bastards wouldn't give up. Where are you going? The night's still young, said Dave, as they boxed us in. We tried to push on through. If we just ignored them, they might go away. Yeah, right. They were like hungry, sex-starved dogs, and we with a fresh meat sizzling on the grill. Come back to mine, said the cage fighter. We'll have a nice little party. Yeah, girls, said Dave. We can sort you out with some free gear. Really? asked Becky. Yeah, we've got weed, powder, pills, whatever you like, said Hipster Rat. I was joking, you div, she laughed, as if. That was it. Now they were angry. Cage fighter grabbed hold of Becky's arm. Wrong answer. Look, just let us go, yeah? Becky said, a slight tremble in her voice. I'm not done with you yet, cage fighter replied, tightening his grip as Becky attempted to pull her arm away. We'll call the police, said Holly, getting out her phone. You'll do whatever we tell you, said Dave. Hipster Rat laughed, snatching Holly's phone off her. Got any nude selfies? Give it back, Holly said, trying and failing to wrestle it off him. Dave stepped into me and put a hand on my bum. I felt ill. Even tits out Millie seemed shocked by the whole ordeal. I looked around for help, but there were no police and no passers-by. We were on our own and officially screwed, being herded down a hidden side street with no CCTV. One of us needed to do something. But what? As we backed up halfway down the alley, Dave did something that led directly to the answer. He put a hand up my skirt. Big, big mistake. Huge. I don't know how to explain it. Something inside just took over. Give us a kiss, Dave said. 
Oh, I'll give you more than that, I said. All right, now we're talking. Come here, he said, pulling me in close. I dropped one of my shoes, keeping hold of the other in my right hand. As he angled for a kiss, tongue flapping out of his mouth like a fish on a line, I hooked the heel under his balls and yanked up hard until he screamed. I drew my head back and planted it crown first in his face, dropping him to the floor where he cradled a broken nose. The girls shared a collective gasp. Hipster Rat let go of Holly and tried to sucker-punch me from the left. I stepped to one side and he missed by a mile. For some reason, I knew just where to bend his arm to make it crack. I raked the heel of the shoe down his spinal cord and he yelped like a stood-on dog. Ollie smashed the base of his bottle against the wall and went for my throat. I stooped down and rabbit-punched him in the sternum. He collapsed instantly, fighting for breath. Look out! Becky screamed. Too late. The big guy knocked me off balance with a size 11 boot I only half managed to block. All it did was make me mad. I picked up the other shoe, stood up and rolled out my shoulders. He flew at me, swinging left and right. I blocked him once, twice, three times with some kind of self-defence move. Then it was my turn. I hammered one of the heels into a pressure point on his shoulder that disabled his right side, then picked up the left heel and stabbed him in the neck. I tugged it out, a chunk of flesh stuck on the end, blood spraying in an arc. It made my stomach turn, and the girls jumped backwards. Cage fighter's goose was cooked, but Ollie and Hipster Rat were back as a tag team. I slipped on my shoes, grabbed hold of a pole at the base of a one-way sign, and swung myself around feet first, planting both heels smack in Ollie's ribs. As I landed, Hipster Rat grabbed me by the throat and growled, Fucking have some! I crossed my hands in an X and knocked his forearms away, kicked the back of his knee out and drove the point of my elbow hard between his shoulder blades like Dream Lorna had done to that bodyguard in the Hamptons. He hit the ground face first. The four of them lay twitching and murmuring. I stood in shock for a moment, breath fogging in the cool night air. Did I just do that? The girls stared across the alley at me in stunned silence. What did they do to you in that hospital? Becky asked, open-jawed. Before I could muster an answer, there was a whoop, whoop at the end of the alley, the flashing lights of a police car lighting the alley up blue. Oh, bananas. Chapter 10. The Hairdryer The threat of Dave Lee and his mates was nothing compared to the full force of Auntie Claire. The fact that I turned up jacketless three hours past curfew was bad enough. Scotch on my breath, blood on my shoes and the long arm of the law on the doorstep really tipped her over the edge. As soon as PC Pleb left, the hairdryer came out. She had a good set of lungs, Auntie Claire. She screamed at me until she was literally blue in the face. Can I actually get a word in? I asked, tears in my eyes, shakily sipping on a glass of water at the kitchen table. I don't want to hear it, Auntie Claire said, taking a seat across from me, head in hands. Never mind getting in fistfights with boys, she said. The police said the four lads are in hospital because of you. What on earth has gotten into you, Lorna? Besides alcohol, obviously. That was a good question. First the Big Mac, 
then the scotch, now street fighting, plus the other thing that I was trying hard not to acknowledge. I was going to go away next weekend, Auntie Claire said. I'm going to have to cancel now. Clearly, you can't be trusted. No, you should go. It wasn't my fault. Hmm. It was self-effing defence. Language, Lorna. Effing isn't even a swear word. I could have been raped and you're bothered about swearing. Yes, you could have got raped. Going out like that and drinking until all hours. No wonder. I can't believe this. You're on their side. You sound just like the stupid police. The Popo had very helpfully dismissed the lad's attempts to sexually assault us in the alley. Their word against ours, apparently. And I was the one with blood on my heels. They'd even had the cheek to tell me I was lucky Dave and his mates weren't pressing charges. Auntie Claire cooled off a little and looked up at me. You've had a heart transplant, Lorna. Victim or not, you can't just go out drinking and dancing. First of all, you're 16. Secondly, you have to be careful. You're not like other girls your age. Yeah, so everyone keeps telling me. I stood up, scraping the chair back across the floor, grabbing my handbag and heels. I wanted to leave before I really started bawling. Why was I the bad guy here? Talk about injustice. You all keep telling me what to do, I said. Have you ever thought that I might have an opinion, that I might know what's good for me? I know what's good for you, Auntie Claire said, and that's keeping out of trouble. Until further notice, you're grounded. No drinking, no partying, no going out. A tidal wave of angry heat rose through me. Full nuclear meltdown. What the hell? I screamed, dancing around on the spot. What's the point of living if I don't have a life? I might as well be dead. Come to think of it, why not pack me after that cult like you did with Mum? No wonder she never came back. Wait, Lana. Too late. I was gone, up the stairs and into my room, head buried in the pillows. Life was supposed to get better after the transplant, not worse. My heart pounded away like a drum and bass track. I knew I had to calm down, but grounded, so unfair. Whatever happened to the benefit of the doubt? Grounding me was unforgivable. Yet I had no choice but to serve the sentence, keep my head down, and hope for parole on good behaviour. Auntie Claire was the money, the legal guardian, the jailer. I slipped into my PJs, got in bed and popped my earphones in. I played the relaxation music I'd been given by Lisa, the shrink. After a while, I drifted off, exhausted from all the fighting. Chapter 11. An Evening in Paris I stood in a black tux, crisp white shirt and a bow tie, sipping on a glass of single malt. I faced the room, elbow propped on a long white marble bar. Some kind of posh hotel. Huge crystal chandeliers hung over a super lush masquerade ball packed with men dressed like penguins and women in Versace and diamonds. An orchestra played on stage. Vienna waltz kind of stuff. I turned around. At last, a mirror. It ran the entire length of the bar. The reflection was a shock. I can't describe how weird it is to expect to see your own girly reflection, 
only to see a man instead. And it's not like this was one of those vague, abstract dreams where you turn into a glove puppet and it seems totally normal. It felt as real as homework and period pains. It probably wouldn't have been so bonkers if I'd vaguely resembled the guy in the mirror. The man staring back at me was six feet tall and well-built, with short black hair and a square jaw with perma-stubble. No surgeon in the world could make me Hispanic, ripped and twenty-odd years older. In fact, the only thing I recognised was the man-hand on my glass. I sunk my drink, slipped on a black velvet eye mask and prowled the edge of the ballroom floor. A leggy, athletic blonde in a red designer gown and sparkling silver mask asked me to dance. I took her by the hand and waist and we slotted into the mass of waltzing bodies. Wow, I was quite the mover, spinning around to the music with the rest of the room. This almost made up for missing the school prom, hospital stuff. I felt like Cinderella, albeit a sexually confused version. The mystery woman was an eight out of ten, high cheekbones and thinnish lips. She leaned in close, hair smelling of strawberries. What was that? I had to get some. She spoke in my ear with a German accent. The couple to your right. White jacket, blue gown. She was talking about a middle-aged, married couple we seemed to be following around the ballroom floor. Security? I asked in a deep, husky accent that was European but hard to place. Four upstairs, she said, her eyes darting over to a couple of big guys with earpieces lurking in a corner. Two on the floor. Did you come prepared? I asked. Straight down to business, she said. Can't we just enjoy a dance like a normal couple? I haven't seen you since Mumbai. I must have been giving her a dirty look. Yes, of course I came prepared. Left thigh, right thigh, ever the romantic Philippe. So my name was Philippe. Come on, Inga, I said, as if you're the romantic type. The music stopped, and so did the dancing. We turned and applauded with the room. Our target climbed on stage with a mic in hand. He removed his mask. Wait, I knew this guy. Everyone clapped and cheered. Thank you, thank you, he said in clipped tones that couldn't quite shake off Mother Russia. Thank you for coming. Is everyone having a good time? More cheering. It's so good to see so many friends out for such a worthy cause. I promise I won't keep you long. I know a lot of you have care homes to go to. A big laugh from the silver contingent. But seriously, I just wanted to say thank you to our wonderful orchestra tonight. More applause. To my beautiful wife, Magdalena, for arranging every last detail, down to helping me figure out how to fasten this damn bow tie. I kind of liked this man. Did we have to kill him? That's how these dreams normally turned out. And once again, thank you for your very generous donations, he continued. As an orphan myself, the Second Chance Foundation is an incredibly worthy cause that's close to my heart, and tonight will make a big difference. So please, dig deep and have a wonderful evening. Right. I was definitely rooting for him now. He stepped down and rejoined his wife. Looks like they're on the move, said Inga. She was right. His bodyguards flanked the target subtly as he and his wife hugged their way out of the ballroom. Now I remembered. I'd seen him on TV. He was one of those Russian zillionaires. We followed at a discreet distance until we reached a grand black marble corridor, 
buffed to a squeak underfoot. I dropped back behind Inga and staggered as if drunk. She acted a little tipsy too, suddenly yelling at me to leave her alone. Come on, I said. I've been buying you drinks all night. The zillionaire and his wife stood outside a bank of elevators with their guards. There were three guards in total now, all built like wrestlers. The couple glanced over to see what all the fuss was about. Leave me alone, will you? I'm not interested, said Inga. You tease, I slurred, grabbing my crotch. Come up to my room. I've got a present for you. The Russian man dispatched one of his bodyguards to intervene. Come in with us, dear, Magdalena, the Russian's wife, said to Inga. Andre will take care of him. Thank you so much, Inga said. He's been hassling me all night. As the elevator doors closed, Andre told me to take a hike before I got hurt. I checked the corridor was empty, backing off and holding up my hands in surrender. The second he turned his back, I chopped him on the neck with the point of my hand, catching him on his way down. I dragged his body out of sight into the stairwell next to the elevators, then bounded up four flights of stairs and out onto the second floor, where I stood waiting for the elevator, shiny black shoes sinking into the deep, red carpet. The doors pinged open, the two bodyguards out for the count on the floor of the elevator. Mr and Mrs Zillionaire out cold in either corner. Inga stood in the centre of it all, tucking a short, empty syringe pen into a strap around her left thigh. Fast work, I said. Well, there were only four of them. She planted a foot against one of the elevator doors and unclipped a handgun with a silencer strapped to the inside of her right thigh. We piled three of the bodies up in the middle of the corridor, Mrs Zillionaire on top. We rode the elevator down to the basement with Mr Zillionaire. I carried him over a broad shoulder into the underground car park, chilly and dim, while Inga blipped a sleek black Audi saloon and popped the boot. We rolled casually out of the car park into the night and a stream of city traffic, the Eiffel Tower illuminated in the distance. How cool! Paris was my dream destination. We've got a tail, moving fast, Inga said. A little further down the road, I took a gun from the glove box and slapped in a fresh clip. Silver Mercedes, she said. Two cars back, right lane. Someone woke up early and called it in, I said, pulling the seatbelt loose and opening the passenger door. Ready? asked Inga. Ready, I said. She swerved hard into the right lane. I pushed the door open with my right hand and leaned halfway out of the car with the gun in my left, my head mere inches from the onrushing tarmac. I only got a clear shot of the tail for a second or two but I managed to hit the driver's side tyre with bullet number two. The tyre blew out with a bang, sending the car skidding off the road, smashing into the central barrier. I sat back up in my seat and shut the door. Two shots, Inga said, wearing a smirk. Drink ruining your aim. Chapter 12. Cherry Pop. Somewhere in a field outside Paris, the Audi saloon bumped along a lumpy grass field, bugs zipping in and out of the headlights. Inga stopped the car and turned off the engine, leaving the headlights on. We got out and stretched. It was nippy out. The smell of cow manure and chatter of crickets hung in the air. Muffled shouting and banging came from inside the boot. A tiny light appeared in the sky, growing bigger and noisier. 
A black jet helicopter came down over the fields, blowing up loose grass and pushing Inga's dress away from her long, toned legs. It landed in the middle of the field before a sliding door opened and Nathan jumped out. I opened the boot and hauled the Russian out by the jacket lapels. He was going crazy, swearing in two languages, demanding to know what we'd done with his wife. We marched him across the field, meeting Nathan halfway. Mmm, the countryside. Marvellous. Nathan shouted over the rotor blades. Hello, Yevgeny. I apologise for interrupting your evening. You can't do this to me, Yevgeny said. I'm a senior committee member. Of course, of course. That's why I'm here, Nathan said. We'd like to talk to you about your vote, vis-a-vis -vis the treaty. Nathan put an arm around Yevgeny and guided him towards the chopper. I won't take up too much of your time, Nathan said. Where are you taking me? What have you done with my wife? Your wife is fine, Yevgeny. Come on, let me give you a tour of the city at night. It's quite beautiful. A young woman in a business suit hurried over to me and Inga, carrying a pair of brown envelopes. She handed us one each, then wobbled back awkwardly in heels to the chopper. They slid the door shut and took off, vanishing as quickly as they'd appeared. It must be important, Inga said, as we strolled back to the car. What do you mean? This treaty, she said. He's the fourth senior member in a month they wanted to talk to. She stopped at the car and followed the tiny blinking light of the helicopter in the sky. What do you think they'll do with him? she asked. Drop or dangle? Depends if he signs. I'll go for drop, she said. These billionaires think they're untouchable. He looks like a dangler to me, I said, climbing in the passenger seat. Want to make it interesting? Inga asked, pushing the ignition on the car. A hundred euros? Make it two, I said. Easy money, Inga said, putting the Audi in gear. She spun us round in a half donut, flooring it back to the main road. I stood by the minibar in a hotel room, sipping on a Scotch miniature. The room itself was a double, three-star digs, nothing like the Grand Hotel from earlier. From the sound coming through the window, more of a motel just off a dual carriageway. I heard the toilet flush. I removed my jacket and shoulder holster. Inga appeared in the wedge of light breaking out of the bathroom doorway. Nothing but fancy black underwear. Damn, the woman had style. I wondered what brand. Well, that was an easy fun, she said, slinking across the room. What was easy? The poo? Oh, yeah, the mission. She unknotted my bow tie and brushed both hands down my chest. I felt something move in my pants, like a small animal waking up. Holy crap, weird. She was all set to pop my dream cherry. She kissed me gently, slowly on the lips. Oh, this is confusing. Does this make me a lesbian? No, I'm just a passenger here. I won't deny the excitement I felt at the touch of her silk underwear and soft, smooth skin. It wasn't exactly shrinking my noodle, if you know what I mean. We ended up on the bed under the covers with nothing between us except our smalls. I memorised the label on her knickers as I slipped them off, thinking I'd Google them when I woke up. Not that I had the funds to buy them, but it was nice to browse. Did you bring protection? She whispered in my ear. 
Sig P2 turned semi-automatic and a Glock 17, I said. No, I meant, you know. With our life expectancy, I said. What does it matter? Inga fixed me with a seriously stare. You know the rules on pregnancy. I hesitated and relented. Okay, I said, sliding off the bed and retrieving a condom from a zip inside a black travel holdall. I peeled the corner off the shiny blue wrapper with my teeth as I slipped back under the covers. We got back to the heavy petting. She kissed my neck and it hit the spot. I got lost in the moment. The heat, the passion, the scent of her perfume. She moaned expletives, speaking in her native tongue, saying she wanted me inside her. I wriggled clumsily out of my boxes and got a look at the old chap, standing to attention. This would look great in my penis museum. With my little rubber raincoat on, she guided my dingling inside and we started to do the nasty. It wasn't how I thought it would be, not like on the movies, where silhouette figures indulge in slow, breathless, choreographed movements while they gaze in each other's eyes. It was vigorous, sweaty work and a struggle to find a comfortable way to prop myself up on my forearms. She told me to strangle her. Say what? No thumbs, she added. Where was the romance? Reluctantly, I wrapped my fingers around her throat and gently squeezed. She started to moan and writhe. How did I know if I was killing her or not? Don't be silly, Lorna. Philippe's a pro at this. The more I squeezed, the closer she got to the big O. But something was wrong in the love tunnel. I felt... How do I put this? Shrinkage. Yep. Shrinkage. I kept on trucking, but it was like ice skating uphill. I'd gone from Mr Loverlover to Captain This Doesn't Usually Happen faster than you could say soggy spaghetti. I cut the dance with no pants short and loosened my grip on Inga's throat. Was ist das? she asked, totally miffed. Sorry, it's been a long night. Nein, this is unacceptable. I shrugged and rolled onto my back, counting the damp stains on the ceiling. My first time and I fluff it. You poor man, Lorna. You poor, poor man. We sat naked, side by side in bed, laptops out. Inga was over her little strop and happily finishing off a cup of herbal tea. That doesn't usually happen, I said, dredging the subject back out of the shame pond. Tired, I guess. It's fine, she said. No, really. No, really, it's fine she said, eyes glued to the screen, red nail-varnished fingers whirling over the keyboard. I reached over to the bedside table and grabbed the envelopes. I tossed Inga's over. We ripped them open and emptied out the contents, a silver data stick each. We plugged them in, angling our screens away from each other. I clicked open the file. There was a Google map and clandestine snaps of an auburn-haired woman in a business suit and long grey Macintosh coat plus a document detailing her name and where she worked. Her name was Sarah McKenzie, assistant to the head of MI6. At the bottom of the document, there was a line in large caps, Red Flag Protocol. So, where to next? asked Inga. London. You? Some hellhole in Africa, she said. Hopefully this little world tour will be over soon. She rolled her neck out. The jet lag is killing me, and I'm way behind on my expenses. 
I closed the file and fixed my attention on her. Do you ever regret? What, the life? Inga asked, sipping on her tea. Yeah. No, she said, eyeing me suspiciously. You? I paused for what seemed like an eternity. Of course not. Anyway, she said, getting out of bed and pulling on her bra. What was the alternative in our situations? She climbed back into bed and flicked off the bedside lamp. Life is survival, she said, stretching and yawning in the half-light. You do what you have to. This has been Truly Deadly. Written by Rob Aspinall. Narrated 